Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. In 1979, a hospital bed cost $100 per day, and in 2022, $4,000. Fifty years ago, the average household spent $200 a year on health care, including prescriptions, doctors, visits, and nursing homes. And today, over $20,000. And what about those co-pays, insurance companies, the whole medical-industrial complex? How did we get here? Maybe a physician with a heart of caring can help us understand. Let's discuss. Well, warm greetings, everybody. Gregor and I are really excited to have Dr. Mark Vodagant on uh, today on our podcast and discussing his new book, uh, wonderful book, The Heart of Caring. And uh, Mark, you've, you've, this is your third book. Um, and writing uh, um, Eden Express back in the mid-70s, and then just like someone with mental illness, only more so a memoir uh, uh, back in 2011. This is your third book. You're a good writer. You're, you're, it's enjoyable to read, and I've, I've passed this book on to so many people, and they all remark that uh, it's, it's fun to read, but informative. So... So tell me a little bit about your book. Well, um, I think I was feeling sort of powerless um, and uh, about what was happening to my profession and my patients and my nurses and my providers. Uh, And at the same time, I felt a great uh, gratitude for having had a you know a career as a pediatrician and being in the same community for 40 plus years and taking care of babies uh, who were babies I took care of a long time ago um, so there's much about it which has been great but I certainly um, uh, more recent um, uh, developments have made it so I think the next generation of doctors, um, will not have nearly as much freedom or as much agency or as much autonomy as I've been able to enjoy. And I think the good practice of medicine demands that doctors be independent and it demands that, uh, you know, patient concerns come first, um, rather than the, you know, for-profit, uh, enterprise we've become. And, and you have a pretty good practice, about 5,000 kids you see, uh, and uh, four to five doctors, same amount of uh, nurse practitioners, and five social workers, which seems like a lot of social workers in a pediatric office. Tell me about that. It's necessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the other thing about, you know, those numbers horrify me sometimes that I'm, because I, when I started, um, you know, three full-time doctors shared uh, one all-purpose employee. So there was a third, you know, the support that we needed back then was minimal. We kept uh, records on with carbon paper. Nobody remembers what carbon paper was, but um, um, it, it, I think to keep 
up people's energy and spirits. Most of my providers and nurses work about 24 hours to uh, 32 hours a week. Um, we certainly all, you know, 40 years ago, were working ridiculous hours. Um, but I, I think it's the job has become much more frustrating uh, in that I think over half of what we do is uh, prior authorization, meeting mandates uh, of insurers. And back then it really was 90% of what we did was direct patient care. And that was also true of hospitals. The, the idea of worrying about income or um, all this other stuff did not exist. The hospital's job was to do, to you know, take good care of patients, and the insurer's job was to pay them. Right. You know, what I liked about your book is that I've I've given it to a couple of people. One to a, a psychologist who a clinical psychologist and talking about the change in care over. You know, we're we're both in our seventh decade. Um, I have a good friend that's a hand surgeon. He's on an airplane right now to Europe. And I just happened to uh, pop a copy off to him. And I said, I want you to read this, but I want you to write a book about your experiences that are that mirror your experiences with the insurance companies coming in, green lighting, private care, consolidating these doctors practices, and just frustrating the heck out of their ability to deliver uh, healthcare without being filtered through this money for profit system. Uh, I, I always hand surgeons. Um, I admire them for their for for the very careful careful work they do. But it was also when I met a hand surgeon uh, was oh 15 years ago or so after I ran. I, I cut off part of my thumb, but he was independent at that point. And it was markedly uh, different that he was left alone because the insurers at that point did not know enough to tell a hand surgeon what to do. And now I'm quite sure the business managers would have steered him in the direction of a more complicated, expensive way to deal with, uh, with my partially amputated thumb but um <laughs> he was he, he was a very very happy guy and very happy as a doctor because he had autonomy and agency and could do what he thought was best right right and but, i think it's you know, the profession it used to be a profession uh, yes doctor was a profession and today it's a business right and, uh, money is uh, really commands I mean, the last two poll um the cost of healthcare was the number two issue after inflation for American people. So that's really, that looms over the whole picture is for, for we as consumers, I, I don't want to call them consumers because that's the modern way. I was a patient or I was a, you know, I had a doctor, a professional relationship, but we are consumers today. And for us, we look at the bottom line, how much money it costs. And, uh, and the healthcare, I think, has suffered. I, I know Socially, I know a number of elderly doctors or recently retired doctors who don't recognize the, the profession. I, I, when I read your book, I found you saying that again and again. You don't recognize the profession anymore. Um, what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago is different. But, but it's an industry now, is it? Is it not? It's an industry and not a healthcare system. It's an, it's an industrial 
Yes. And, and we are taking lousy care of people. The resiliency of people and their biology means that we can survive suboptimal medical care quite well. Most people, most of the time, don't need medical care. Our life expectancy is actually going down because medical care is so poor. Um, but, and it is, and doctors have been turned into assembly line workers. The uh, insurers claimed for years that the reason costs were so high was that doctors were ordering too much medical care um, when that had virtually nothing to do, or they blamed patients for demanding too much care. Um, whereas, again, if you ran the numbers, you would find out that the behavior of doctors and patients had almost nothing to do with the escalation of, of uh, the cost of healthcare. We are now uh, spending $4 trillion on care that is roughly half as good as that that's available in Europe and elsewhere. Yeah, I think one of the a big number. One of the best things we can do is send as many people to Europe as possible and have them break their leg. <laughs> yeah, when they and come then back, they, then they come back and they said I, it, it was like twenty bucks. I, I you know. <laughs> yeah, and I saw a doctor. I mean, yeah, right. If if you break your leg in Logan Airport, you're in big trouble. Right, right. You'll Just... probably have a physician's assistant uh, put the cast on your leg. In Heathrow, you're in much better shape. Right. You, slip, you'll slip in Heathrow. That's correct. Yeah. You'll you'll see a doctor. He'll put a cast on your leg, and it won't cost you any money. Well, I I do a little intro with all of my podcasts, and here is uh, some facts from the intro for your podcast. In 1979, a hospital bed cost $100 per day. In, in 2022, it's 4,000, 100 to 4,000. 50 years ago, the average household spent $200 a year on healthcare, including prescriptions, doctor's visits, nursing homes. Today, it's $20,000. So is, is this just a problem of capitalism just figuring out a way to extract wealth from a sector of our economy and be very effective and efficient at doing it? Yes, absolutely true. If, and um, if we allowed fire departments to run on a for-profit basis, you would end up with exactly the same situation. You would end up with very wealthy pyromaniacs in burnt out cities because what an insurance company is actually making on is refusing care. And what a for-profit fire department would do was, you know, protecting a, a few houses, but burning down the rest. So the people who are left with houses would be willing to pay more money. Um, that's exactly what's gone wrong. And um, these people who are blaming doctors and patients who are now known as covered lives, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and we are point of care providers. There, there are no doctors and patients anymore. But anyway, these guys who are complaining about doctors ordering too many tests and stuff are making in the 20 to $50 million a year uh, compensation. How, you know, and, but, but they with a straight face will say that the problem is hospitals and doctors are doing too much care. And the whole problem is if doctors and, you know, they, they have this motto called, we want less but better medical care. 
what they're getting is less than worse medical care, but better and better profits. And, and that's, that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a bizarre thing to, to attach people's well-being, their health, to, uh, to profit. I mean, it, it, yeah. there's no way that can make any sense. I mean, no way that can work. And yet, in this country, our politicians have not tackled that. I mean, we have uh, single-payer health care. I think uh, Sanders has a bill. Uh, there, there were two bills now, one in the House, one in the Senate. Conyers had one before, and the people always support it in polls, but the politicians take it nowhere. Right. We have been fighting and losing this battle for nearly 100 years, um, and I do think we would do better uh, and what I, when I, when I talk now, I try to frame it as not as single payer or Medicaid care for all, um, which are all great ideas, but are there politically there, you know, it's like the third rail and you, and what um, I like to frame it as is we should not be doing things that hurt patients. And if you add up all the things that make healthcare profitable, if you add up co-payments, which didn't used to exist, deductibles didn't used to exist, prior authorizations, quality improvement initiatives, re, you know, um, enhanced reimbursement, which is paying you know, doctors uh, you like a lot more and putting the doctors who take care of poor people out of business, you add up all of that and you say, okay, well, one at a time. Let's drop co-payments the way we did to take care of COVID patients, which made care much more efficient, much safer, and saved families hundreds of millions of dollars. That same model could be used um, to get rid of hepatitis, to um, there, there, there is just no clinical situation where co-payments make sense. None. And, right. and, and, and the numbers are such, but framing that in terms of not in terms of attacking profits or our, our sacred capitalism, um, uh, framing that as we should not be hurting patients and keeping it that simple, I think it's a lot harder for people to argue against that. Right, right, right. You know, I, the, the other thing I liked about your book is when you are at the end of your career, you're a pretty dangerous man because you can tell the truth. <laughs> you Absolutely. Know? You know, it's just like uh, you know, I I I noticed that, and I noticed that in my my career uh, too. And your book is actually it's a it's a chronology and a memoir of the the the, the shift that has gone wrong. But through it all, you talk about what you think needs to be done right for example meeting with the parent patient and talking to them and not being on the computer yeah i i ask anybody who's gone into seeing the specialist and they spend half their time on the computer are literally dictating the report as they're talking to you oh my gosh absolutely uh and and the fact that you come out to the patient and you do the the weighing and the heights and talk to them and and try to spend time the commodity of time is such a valuable thing in good health care and we never yeah. no one has time anymore 
it's much more efficient that way. By the time I've taken somebody's blood pressure, I know what's wrong with them. You know, so so the rest of the time can be right. spent uh, uh, getting them to believe it and trust it and actually do what I said. You know, if if they have to pay their copayment, have a copy made of the, you know, by the time they get to the exam room, they've forgotten what they're there for. Um, you know, what we're doing is so inefficient, um, and it. Uh, it, it truly is a huge uh, pyramid scheme, which is taking all the resources uh, from the bottom uh, and, 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 and funneling them right up to the $50 million a year guys. That's what's screwing up healthcare. Right, right. And the, the, the other issue um, is that at times some of these new uh, innovations are effective. The fact that if I get sick, someone can access my medical records from multiple locations is probably a, a good thing. If um, it were true. Oh, oh, don't tell me it's not true. It's not, it might not, not be true. true. When, when, again, when doctors were in charge of designing and buying electronic medical records. The, I did it long before because it makes sense. You have the problem list, you have the med list, you have the allergies and you have open source software. So your machine can trade information with anybody else. Now, if you go to one hospital and they're not on the same electronic medical record, there's no, you know, there's no translation. The other thing, when EMR started, they were $1,000 per doctor because that's about what they were worth and about what doctors could afford. Now, these systems are being put in um, at a cost of $100,000 and more per provider. So I'm really, really sorry that uh, the digitalization of medical care uh, wasn't ultimately uh, run for the good of patients and doctors. The, the electronic uh, system works in the VA. They set up mm -hmm. a system throughout the entire system that right. you can access information any VA, anywhere in the, in the country. And it's effective, it's efficient, right. it's not terribly costly, it's just sensible. Right. But you don't have, as, as, as Mark said, you don't have the money, you don't have the, the consultancy that's attached to it. It is just done and it works effectively. Yeah. And I think that's one, one, one approach to maybe changing our system is to use the VA as our model because it is a, uh, a national healthcare system. I mean, it really functions as uh, a very effective, very good system, even though it's underfunded. Okay. Works very well. Like so many things, as soon as you make uh, electronic medical records sensible and functional, you take the profit out of it because as soon, because they have these fees for user fees and, and information transfer fees and everything. So you, um, you get these, I think quite literally, uh, Mass General and, um, and Brigham Hospitals bought a system for $3 billion. All of that money has to come from patients and healthcare. Um, and, once you buy a system like that, you can't go into an open source system or go, you know, you can't go from Epic to Athena or any of the, 
and and they are um, you know they are pursuing uh, monopolies. It's just like the Gilded Age, uh, and. So electronic medical records stopped being to help patients and started being another way to make a lot of money. Right, right. You know, I, I uh, spent part of my time in field of education and um, kind of a middle management uh, position. And we used to have what was required oh, 10, 10 years ago student learning plans came down for every single student that was below grade level. You had to write up a student learning plan. You had to meet with the parents. You had to go. It was this whole big thing. Mm -hmm. It did not do a doggone thing about mm -hmm. improving education. All it did was divert a lot of time and an energy and bureaucratic uh, uh, problems to this one, one issue. And that reminded me so much about your asthma, <laughs> asthma right. plan. You know, someone came out and said, wouldn't it be a great idea if we had this detailed asthma plan? And it would be if it had some, some positive impact on the patient. Just right. like these student learning plans, they never had an impact on the patient. Never. Right. We practice good medical care or take good care of asthmatics in spite of the asthma uh, uh, acute quality improvement plans and stuff, not because of them. And um, doctors and patients are already highly motivated um, to know how to handle their asthma. Any parent who has a kid with serious asthma and that kid beyond a certain age knows exactly what to do. Pediatricians uh, know exactly how to handle asthma. So this is uh, just it's like you have another job. You have your first job is to take care of your patient. Uh, and then you have another job, which is to take care of the insurer who will not pay you unless you have complied with their plan. It's not just advice. It's uh, we won't pay you unless you do this. Bizarre. Bizarre. I, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about mental health. Um, and 20% uh, of the population, I think you said in your book, at some point in time is going to have a mental health crisis. And you are very proactive in dealing that with the, your pediatric uh, practice. And uh, I, for those of who don't, don't know you, you've uh, struggled uh, periodically with uh, bipolar issues and at times have needed some extra psychiatric support. Yeah. And, and, and one of my... Uh, one of the best podcast we've done was with a, a man named Freddie DeBoer, who has a um, written a book uh, on um, education and so forth. And he recently had a uh, very angry uh, Substack about a New York Times article from May seventeenth. It calls it says that. Uh, Doctors uh, gave her antipsychotics and she decided to live with it. It is this new trend, if you will, that you know we need to allow these people the opportunity to just sort of enjoy their voices. It reminds you of um, uh, reminds me of you wanting to bite uh, R.D. Lang. One of my first published pieces. Thank you for remembering that. Yes, I, I read it. It's very good, very funny. It, 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 it's this, this idea that somehow uh, people that periodically have 
a deterioration in their mental function where they hear voices or they'll they'll uh, you know have a lot of dysfunction that they just need to kind of enjoy it. It's an alternate reality. I I I don't know. Haven't we got over this? It's pure to torture, um, and we. In fact, we created the pro the problem of homelessness is largely a problem of a lack of psychiatric beds. The problem of of overcrowded prisons is like is largely a problem of mental illness. Uh, mental illness isn't isn't fun. It, the, the bottom line is you can't take care of yourself even a little bit. And yeah, I am, I'm very open because I want people to know that you can recover and have a full life. Um, I, I've, had, I've had three serious uh, psychiatric hospitalizations. It's no fun, but you can get over it. And I take medication. Right. And um, I, I do think when people are lucky enough to recover, um, they shouldn't hide it. Right. Right. And that I think that really helps when you speak so honestly and openly about it. And it helps a lot of people to, you know, receive help. I, I as a school psychologist, maybe four times in my career, I'd have that high school kid that came in, you know, with some presenting with some psychotic uh, features, not not responding well to reality. And it's a frustrating it's a frustrating thing, but it needs you know, it happens. It happens in one out of a hundred patients and or, or students in my case and um to talk about it and not be shamed about it right. is, is, is important and not to romanticize it i think you know i think another thing is people have connected it up um with creativity in terms of it's almost like if you become a good artist you're more at risk for mental illness where in fact being an artist helps you not to become uh, mentally ill it's a way to stay on the planet um and i've i have said that my father um had he you know perfect mental health we wouldn't have so many wonderful books and um and i i do think good art is about patients who are struggling to save their own lives and to fight mental illness not giving into it i don't think anybody chucks their meds and goes and writes a great novel just doesn't happen right do you think, uh, do you think the coarseness and vulgarity of life uh, contributes to that and to what extent does it another what i'm driving at is it's difficult, even when you think you have good mental health, to deal with the world we find ourselves in today, more so than say when you were younger, when I was younger. Yeah. And you know, much of what I think, well, I won't say, I don't know, but I would assume that some of what people are, are reacting to when they have issues around their health, their mental health, is the sickness of the environment, not their own sickness as much as it is the sickness of the environment. I, and if they don't cope with it, perhaps it means they're more sensitive. Perhaps it means that they're more human. And, definitely and, true. And, and so, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, for example, during the Thornburg administration, they shut down, they closed facilities and mm -hmm. put mentally ill people on the streets, yep. in homes. And I had an office, and of course, they put these mentally 
uh, ill people in poor neighborhoods. They don't go into the, the suburban wealthy neighborhoods. They go into poor neighborhoods. And so I had an office and it overlooked the street and the, and I call them victims. These victims of this mean, cruel action were like zombies. Yep. They were walking the streets and they protected each other because they didn't have, they were really thrown out into a cruel world. It just, just amazes me that the callousness right. that was right. behind a move like that. So is it, is it the case, do you find it the case that socially our government, our, our uh, institutions have become callous and have really Absolutely. We have, as I said, we have created two horrible problems of uh, incarceration um, and homelessness strictly by shutting down uh, mental health facilities. And, uh, and also we've created medical debt. We've created, um, you know, people who do get well need resources. They need intact neighborhoods. They need, um, and when they first started deinstitutionalization, it was a polite name for let's create homelessness. Um, they said they were going to create, um, you know, community mental health centers. Well, they shut down the hospitals, but the community mental health centers never came about. The life expectancy for a patient discharged from Boston State Hospital who had been there any length of time uh, was less than a year. These people froze to death. These people, um, so there is a, if you deal with mental health as if it were a money problem, it, you do end up with patients hospitalized for just a week or two and put out on the streets with so much medication they can't think straight just because that will make rehospitalization less likely. But the, the point of all the effort the hospital and doctors put in is to save the insurer money, not to help the patient uh, regain their foothold in the world. You know, the other thing that you mentioned too is this, the loss of the rural hospital, the loss of the rural doctor. My in-laws live in Eastern Washington and you know, they pooled together and bought a doctor that came in and did primary care as a part of the, you know, the end of his medical career or for loan forgiveness or something like that. And the, lo the loss of mental health. Uh, where, where do you see a psychiatrist in a rural part of eastern Washington? You know, where, where, I, 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 what, it's what unreal. What about Boston? I, I've lost count. Do we have four medical schools here? And how many hospitals do we have? It's, it's um, I, for me, you know, I try to get a kid uh, to be seen by a psychiatrist uh, and, uh, you know, the kid wants to kill himself and, oh, well, there's a three to four month wait, at least for that, six months if it's not urgent. And I said, here's the deal. My kid, my patient doesn't want to kill themselves in the future. He wants to kill himself today. Um, and um, it's just, it is utterly absurd. And I do think it's not just mental health. If you have, if you need to see a gastroenterologist or whatever, you're put on a waiting list. It used to be, I would call up a gastroenterologist and I say, hey, Dr. Kleinman, can you see this kid? Da, da, da. He said, what are the problems? I said, and, and again, there was no going through this impersonal you know, and you say, sure, I'll see the kid on Wednesday, send him on over. And, and 
we had phone, we had telephones, we had these things you put up to your head and you talk to other doctors. And, uh, and, and this was much safer, much better coordinated than the electronic medical records where they just shoot out, you know, reams of boilerplate information. You know, we had Susan Gordon on who wrote a book about the VA and uh, it's actually a very positive book about the VA. And, and she talked about a process called the warm, was it the warm handshake? Was that right? Warm Greg? handoff. The warm, the warm handoff. handoff where you have a person who's in crisis or PTS or whatever, and the primary care doc actually walks right down the hall and Absolutely. says, here's my, here's right. my person. And, and right. what a great idea. <laughs> one of my favorite, one, people say, why do you have so many social workers around? Well, I had this, you know, a teenager was just in absolute, you know, mess with, uh, drugs, the law, everything. And I, I said, you know, maybe you should do therapy. He said, no, I hate therapy. I tried therapy. And I said, yeah, I hate it too, but let me just go get a social worker so you can explain to them why you hate therapy so much. And, and it works. The kids, you know, the, you know, the social worker helps straighten this kid out. But I think that if you give somebody a phone number and say, or the worst thing you can do is give somebody the insurance mental health access number. Oh God. Um, <laughs> I actually, for myself, I had to uh, get it okay to see a psychiatrist years ago. So I had to call up the case manager and stuff like that. And I've learned, I started my, my uh, call with, I haven't been hospitalized in a while, but I would like to see a psychiatrist. And th th so that sort of up the ante, this guy could cost us real money if, uh, if we don't say yes, but that's a great way to send, to, to get a little attention. I haven't been hospitalized in a while. Yeah, yeah. My my neighbor across the street is a pediatric nurse, and we chatted a lot about your book. Unfortunately, she's only halfway through it. So I, uh, I, uh, but I loved how you were talking about the quote in the book: "Combat hardened neonatal nurses protected the infants from yes, the." They did. You know, they were just like these salty dogs. You know, hi, thank you, welcome, doctor. But by God, you're not going <laughs> to screw this up. <laughs> And, and 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 we appreciated it right you know, right we're dealing with these little teeny babies you could virtually put in a pocket and right. uh, and walk out and no these nurses you know if you went near them ordered one too many blood tests or whatever you were in you, trouble <laughs> in serious trouble <laughs> you have a you have a section here uh, i was most impressed with on addiction Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. it's it's you're a good writer, a really good writer, and good writer leaves you with a, a phrase or a group of phrases that just stick in your mind, and I repeat it to my friends. If I may, I'd like to read it. No one grows up wanting to be an addict. I don't think of it as a choice as much as a lack of better choices. Over and over again, my generation worked very hard to prove that drugs are bad for you. More recent generations should honor our sacrifices by not doing drugs. There's a grim lack of playfulness in how most people do drugs today. You've had discussions of addiction and and it's it's uh, uh, it's, it's 
cost, cost on people. But I thought you captured addiction so well in just that simple paragraph there. Could you talk a bit about addiction and, and, and how, how you see it? Yeah, I, I do think it's, um, it's a lack of, of better choices. And it's not that, um, you know, if somebody, and what I, I, I tell kids all the time, if you have a passion for music, if you have a passion, um, you know, for sports, if you have something that you have that you don't, that you want to protect, you have a better choice for how to spend your time. But I think so, I, I mean, even sports, it's ramped up to the, to the level as if you're not at a semi-pro level, uh, nobody else plays sports. It used to be everybody played sports. Um, but I, um, you know, when I look at the reality that, um, you know, 18-year-olds are facing now compared to what I was facing at 18, which was, you know, there was, yeah, we had this, we had war, we had racism, we had poverty and stuff, but we also had a very sense of, we can do something about this. We had two, two we were a little too optimistic. Say, let's, let's check off poverty, let's check off racism. But um, we did not have the sense of powerlessness. We did not have this sense of, we don't have anything better to do. And it was, it was, I remember when, you know, people were doing a new drug or whatever, they'd have a scribe, they'd have a notebook along trying to, you know, take notes and learn something from it. Now people are just trying to check out. It's like they want to be dead for at least a little while. Well, you and I are a, a lot alike. You don't realize it, but we both got a little bit derailed by the 60s, if you will. <laughs> uh, I uh, was went down to Stevens Farm. Was going to join a commune with my soon-to-be wife at the time. You you were up in uh, Vancouver, right? Uh, Vancouver, BC, north of Vancouver. We went. We were. We went up to Powell River, which was um, you know yeah. two ferry rides, twelve miles boat ride, and we the you know we had we had nothing. We had no electricity, no plumbing, nothing. There you go. We, we, we both had VW vans and I'm sure the idiot book in the back of them to fix them and uh, uh, and and uh, uh, conscientious objectors and and fathers with PTSD. Yeah, uh, my dad was a 50 combat veteran uh, and came back and no one knew it until almost the end of his life did we start to put together that a good part of his you know, formative years, he was mm -hmm. constantly struggling with yeah. the, the the horrors of war. And yeah. I, again, with our conversation with Susan Gordon, Susan Gordon, they're getting so much better in identifying that as a feature that needs to be dealt with more effectively and aggressively and, and uh, with new therapies. But, you know, what would you give to have a Reevaluation, a, a, a re-relationship, knowing what you know now about uh, how 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 much difficulty and turmoil our dads were our dads were in. Yes, and um, yeah, I, I, it's it's. I mean, it's just what I grew up with, and and I think as the 
as the oldest son and person who played chess with him a lot and stuff. He, um, you know, Slaughterhouse Five is really sort of this nice, in a way, sanitized soft story. Uh, whereas he was damn near beaten to death with a scrub brush by, you know, a German guards. And he was, uh, you know, he was recaptured and forced to go down into the subways where all the incinerated people and dogs and everything and bring those partially burned bodies out, uh, you know, day after day after day. Um, and so that was there. There was a lot of trauma. One of the things I uh, that uh, I well I don't I don't like anything about PTSD. But what I like is that the cure uh, or the therapy seems to be talking to other vets who have been through the same stuff, um, because there is an aloneness to I'm the only one who feels right. this way, and so I think it's it's. Uh, um, it's wonderful that the therapy isn't some pill. The therapy is really to talk to other people who have been through the same thing. And it can occur late in life even, uh, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's never too late to address it and to try to deal with it and to try to see right. how it's been put, put you in a fog for part of your life. So I no. think that's my opinion. So I, I, I have another question. I, I've been one, I'm, if you look at all of these artists, they're all phenomenal um, artists, uh, musicians. They're, they're, they're good artists. John Lennon, Bob Dylan, John Mellencamp considers himself a painter before he does a rock star. David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, Joni Mitchell, is a, is a, she's a painter. And, yeah. and then she happens to sing, you know, and, and, right. and play Miles Davis, Cat Steven, a teaser in the Firecat. He did that. Uh, he did his album covers. Tony Bennett is a phenomenal artist. What is it? And you're a good artist. You're a musician, and you're a good artist. Uh, what is it with art connecting um, with these creative processes that um, you know? It seems to be so simpatico with these great artists are often multi-artists. I think, again, I would say that, that great artists are people who are struggling against um, uh, some form of mental illness. And there is nothing like, uh, you know, playing rock and roll to get yourself out of a funk or a depression. And there, and I do think it's, it's a way, art is a way to connect with other people, it, you know, Joni Mitchell makes this painting and somebody else looks at it and says, that's a really good painting, you know? And so I think it's a way to be part of the world. I think people misunderstand um, the lonely genius or whatever who goes off into a cave to do art. I think art connects people to other people. And I think, uh, and I think that's incredibly important to somebody like John Lennon or, you know, Bob Dylan, whatever it's it's I I think they are you know driven to want to make connections to other people and art is how you do that and they can they can't not do art right <laughs> they they have to do art uh, it's right. like uh, right 
integrated into their personality. It's not something that you can just pick up and it's not like a hobby, you know? Right. Uh, uh, right. They have to do it. So that's kind of what I see. I don't know. You, you, you have a couple of great uh, YouTube uh, or lectures where you're talking about that, the creative process and the art and how it's all connected and um, wonderful. So, so, well, Greg, any final thoughts? Well, I just really appreciate uh, the book. And I, I don't believe in, in a genetic connection with uh, skill and art and so on, but I wouldn't underestimate what a good writer you are. And <laughs> you tell people these, these short, pithy chapters are just mm -hmm. beautiful to read. I mean, they're not poetry, but they lean in that direction, but they're packed, they're packed with insights. And I think uh, uh, what's so valuable about the book, and I'd urge people to buy it. Again, I haven't read your other books, but is 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 just that that it's just artfully written and and just a delight uh, to read. One of the few books I shouldn't say this because we've had a lot of authors on our podcast, <laughs> but it's one of the few books that I didn't get in the middle and say, "Geez, I wish I were further along." Or, how, how close am I to the end of this? I was sorry that it ended. Right. And, and that's a skill. And I hope maybe you become a novelist. Uh, did it ever cross your mind to become a novelist? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I, I certainly, partly ego, I guess. I didn't want to be a one book, book wonder, right? And then two, and then I just thought, well, maybe one more. <laughs> no, it's like, <laughs> no, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I love writing when you get it right. Um, painting is a little is a little less work than writing, and playing music is just beautiful. I mean, it's just that the enjoyment is right there, and I think you have to uh, work harder to create a, a good painting and to create a novel is really really not easy. Yeah. Yeah, 61 chapters and 238 pages, a little long in chapters and short, but each one is just a vignette. And uh, I agree, I agree with Greg, you, you are a good, good writer. And Greg and I generally agree on politics, but not always. And I the, like what I like about Greg is sometimes he just, I'll send him a book that I love. And he'll say that is the worst thing I've ever it was a root canal to read that thing, Pat, what's wrong with you? But we were halfway through his book and we chatted and he said, oh, my God, this is this is a treat. This is really a treat. So if it, well, if Greg's happy, I'm happy. So that's, well, that's, I am happy. That's part I of can it. ask for nothing more. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much. This has just been such a treat for both of us. And I you are the heart of caring is partially I still care now and I want to make things better. And that's why you're doing this. That's why we're, you're chatting with us. That's why you're being available for other people. And I, um, I like I said, I, I strongly encourage people to to be familiar with your work. You're yeah. you're you're a good person. We can change things. I truly am an optimist that um, the the you know the tyranny of money can't last forever. It has to explode eventually. Well. Um, that I, I think, you know, uh, Greg, as a Marxist, would uh, um, say that's right. <laughs> well, if you're a Marxist today, you have to be an optimist. You really <laughs> have to be an optimist in today's world. So, 
Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanks, okay. Mark. Really liked it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.